0: This is J.G. Hertzler, General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM.
1: Hello, and welcome to Season 7, Episode 20, or Episode 150 of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of star trek i'm mike i'm john and today we're joined once again by eric stillwell how's it going eric fantastic how are you guys we're doing okay uh I'm pretty good you're, thanks you're 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 back from trekonderoga and and everything
0: Yep.
1: Uh, where you got to watch your episode of star trek on the bridge of the enterprise what that
0: was pre- that was pretty amazing pretty amazing <laughs> They installed an 80 inch screen on the enterprise view screen and we got to watch it.
1: That's, that's awesome. That's awesome, man. I'd love to do that. Yeah.
0: And the 25th anniversary, no less.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. twenty-fifth. Wow. Yeah. That... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. Uh, it, it holds up. It definitely holds up. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Now, we you know, we talked last week about your work on Star Trek and your work with Michael Pillar and everything and and on The Dead Zone and and today we're going to talk about uh Michael Pillar's last television show which was Wildfire, uh which you were also an associate producer on, correct? Correct. So, Dead Zone it was a success. It's going still still was going strong right when this thing came into existence. But uh, kind of like what we talked about last week, it seems like Michael was never really one to just stop with like what was going on and and, and, and just focus on that thing. He was always creating something new. So, right. so were there other projects which he was kind of throwing around at this time or was this like his baby?
0: Yeah, I mean, Dead Zone was just one of the projects and there were... There were always other projects in development because Michael had, you know, started his own production company and we had the, the facilities to be able to accommodate more than one project at a time. So he was always, you know, looking for like other projects that he could help develop and produce. And because of our partnership with Lionsgate television with the Dads, um, they were also always looking for other properties as well. So, um, Wildfire was an idea that was brought to him by a friend of his, Chris Teague, who Michael had known for a long, long time. And Chris was always pitching ideas, and he had, you know, sold a story for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And and, uh, this was something that intrigued Michael, and so he decided to uh, develop it with Chris.
1: So, I mean, just just kind of going back there a little bit, uh, since it was like a production company and it was set up to do more than one project at a time and and that sort of thing, was uh, his intention always to sort of develop his own thing or was he ever uh, considering the idea of maybe – taking someone's pitch like, like Chris Teague's and uh, you know, if, if, if let's say he was at a place where he had a fully formed idea and was ready to run with it, would Michael consider acting as like a producer, but not necessarily a writer?
0: Um, that was definitely a potential, um, uh, depending on the ability of the person to be a show runner. If the person mm-hmm. came in who was, but, People who are at that level usually can develop their own projects and yeah. go sell them somewhere. Um, and Chris didn't really have that level of experience as a, as a showrunner, per se, but he, but he had ideas that Michael liked. And so Michael was basically the, the creative um, writer person who could put it together and also had the um, contacts basically to sell it to a studio and get a network to buy it and uh, that's that's how that one came about i know we had some other projects that were in development like with craig silverstein who also worked on the dead zone and uh, you know there were always irons in the fire because adam fratto was one of the producers who worked there who was always looking for projects to develop for the company and he came to the company through uh, through lloyd segan who was one of michael's partners at pillar squared and so that there was always you know ideas floating around things that they could like develop both features and television in,
2: in the development of this was uh because one of the things that's um that jumps out at me is using the, you know, the horse as a, as the cornerstone of a series, isn't typical for the time period this came out. Was that something that was always there, or was that some sort of personal touch that he brought to it, or?
0: See, I, I have to say, I honestly don't know a lot of the history of how Chris and Michael together developed the story, per se. Um, by this point in time, I had um, become associate producer on The Dead Zone, and we were working on Wildfire. And previously, I had also continued to be the script coordinator for a long time on all of the projects. And now we actually had separate um, script coordinators working on the two shows. And when you're a script coordinator, you have more involvement in seeing like every draft of every script and everything that comes through, whereas I was now focused more on um, administrative things with the company, because there are so many just issues with running a company, (laughs) like having phone problems and having toilets that are (laughs) overflowing. So I was doing a lot of the, the company management for Michael, because after we had gotten into doing the series Wildfire during the first season was when Michael was diagnosed with, with a cancer, head and neck cancer. So the Michael actually passed away in November of 2005, which was the first season of Wildfire. So the last year became increasingly uh, more difficult as Michael couldn't be as involved as he had been in all of his other projects because of his cancer treatments. And, um, it was, it was a really tough year for, for everybody involved. And so, um, for me, it was my only season working on wildfire because after Michael passed away, my wife and I moved to Oregon. And so I don't remember like a lot of the details, but one of the things I did want to talk about regarding Michael's um, dedication to writing and developing projects was he loved doing research. And once he had an idea of what he wanted, he would throw himself into like the research of it. So Michael would go to like horse racing tracks and talk to trainer, horse trainers and Now, he would get into every aspect of it until he, like, really knew everything about his subject matter. And uh, just as an aside, there was a project that Michael spent several years working on called The First TV Set, which would have been a really, really cool show, but we could never get anyone interested in picking it up. But uh, Michael wanted to basically write a show about... when he was a kid growing up in New York and the f- family getting like their first television set back in mm-hmm. the nineteen fifties. And it wasn't autobiographical, it was the characters were still fictional, but Michael drew a lot on his um like childhood memories of getting the first television and some of the shows that were on. But he wanted it to have a historical context around some of the political events that were happening in the 1950s mm. with uh, senator Kefauver and some senate hearings and things and he just had went into so much research about the details of putting together like the historical context of this show that it was really sort of astounding and and it, and he was able to weave like um historical events with things that were happening on television like with the i love lucy show and, huh. and back in the days when you know even uh, ricky and lucy had to sleep in separate beds and they couldn't say the word pregnant on television and and he was able to leave this whole like historical and social context it was almost like um, it was sort of like it had that kind of feeling of the, the wonder years, that except it incorporated like the television it was all centered around the television so in a lot of ways michael would pick like animals or inanimate objects as like the centerpiece of, of a project and then i mean literally the working title of that show was called the first tv set <laughs> so it's not like having a horse named wildfire
1: that's that's really yeah. cool. That that, that sounds yeah. like it would have been an awesome show. Actually, I, I would I would have loved to have seen it. So, yeah. like, how when when he's developing a show like that, um, is it the type of thing where? Because I mean, I it, it's since it's supposed to be a series and everything, I know that there's probably like a bible and stuff, but is it the type of thing where he like really focuses on? just getting like the pilot to be like spot on, or would he actually go ahead and write a few more scripts to sort of give people an idea of what the show would be? I think in the
0: beginning, you know, when they prepare the vital slash pitch kind of document for the studio or the network, there are always sort of one liner ideas of, what other episodes could be about. But Michael really did kind of focus on like the pilot episode. I think with Dead Zone, we sort of, or not Dead Zone, but well, maybe with Dead Zone and with Wildfire, we sort of had a serious commitment more than just let's do a pilot and see if they like it. It was sort of like here's what we want to do. And you know the dead zone was already successful and so it was basically okay here you've got the green light to like do another show here so but michael would still spend a lot of time doing research and, and earlier than dead zone and wildfire when michael would be doing research we're talking about the days before the internet, before Wikipedia, <laughs> before all these resources at your fingertips. So I remember, you know, having to go down to the Los Angeles Public Library and, like, like go through the card files and looking for, like, books and references. And at some point, Michael actually hired actual uh, research people who would go and do that kind of work for us because it was like a whole different world back before you had so much information that you can get off the internet. And literally, like, going back to the first TV, I, I wish that show had actually happened because Michael actually traveled back to New York and tracked down real-life people who were involved in, in these events that happened. I mean, the Kefauver hearings, I think, um, centered around the, mafia activity in yeah. New York City back in the nineteen fifties. Michael actually tracked down like the widows of people who were key figures in these events wow. and went to New York and like interviewed them and met with them and got like firsthand like stories about what things were really like back in the day. So he really threw all of himself into these projects. And he did the same thing when he was developing Wildfire.
1: You, you can see that in Wildfire. I mean, like, I remember, because I don't know anything about horses. I'm from Chicago, you know? <laughs> I mean, the closest I get to, like, a wildlife is, you know, um, walking walking my dog, you know, across the street or something like that, the dog park. But. Well... <laughs> exactly yes (laughs) but you know so like I'm watching this and they're like talking about how like oh well the horse you can do this in order to make the because you always watch like people on horses and you see them and it looks like they're just sitting on the horse and the horse is doing whatever it is they want them to do and you're (laughs) like how is that working and here like they actually kind of like explain it for us city folk you know it's uh... (laughs) a It's yeah. it's it's really cool. I mean, it, it really does give you a sense of what that world is like. You know, it's pretty it's pretty expansive and everything. Um, so, yeah, I, I can definitely see his his uh, his research work in the finished product. That's that's really cool.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, were there, Were there any other? I mean, just since we're on the subject, any right now? Were, were there any other uh, projects that you remember that kind of like stood out as being? Like, pretty cool, or, or things that you would have liked to have seen get made?
0: Well, the story that, that uh, Craig Silverstein was working on was called Confidence, and it was about a, a confidence man, mm-hmm. who, which I thought was interesting. And they actually developed some scripts and stuff for that. But that was, you know, so many projects in Hollywood just never come to fruition. It's kind of sad.
1: Yeah. Well, for those people who don't know, which I'm guessing probably a lot of Star Trek fans haven't seen Wildfire. Um, what's what's sort of the, the the premise of the show?
0: Well, all the Deep Space Nine fans have seen it.
1: <laughs> oh sure, yeah, yeah, because they're the cool ones, right? <laughs> because, yeah, because
0: yeah. Nana Visitor was in it. There you go. Right? Yeah. So m- Michael was always keen on finding ways to attract Star Trek fans into his other projects and they such a, a wonderful actress. It was really, it was cool to have her working on the show. And, uh, like you mentioned earlier, Dennis Weaver played her father on the show. And that was pretty cool too. Yeah. I forgot what the question was already. <laughs> Just, uh, what,
1: what the premise of wildfire was. The
0: premise uh, yeah. was basically about a, a, a female juvenile delinquent who, um, is sort of lost and on the wrong path. until some people get her interested in like horse, the horse world, the horse racing world. And she falls in love with this horse that, that they're going to auction off for dog food or whatever. Yeah, a glue factory. <laughs> and she decides she's going to steal the horse and save the horse. And, and, uh, It becomes very dramatic, and she's in trouble again for doing that, but then Minato's character, like, sort of invites her to come and live with them on this farm, bring the horse with her, and save the horse. And the series sort of, like, launches from that particular storyline. I mean, it's definitely a a youth-oriented... I think we used to make jokes It was kind of like, O.C. meets you know, uh, secretary or whatever (laughs) kind of story.
1: That's, I mean, that's a good description. I mean, it it does definitely have that sort of, you know, like Dawson's Creek sort of vibe to it, but it was on like ABC family, right?
0: Yes. ABC family.
1: Yeah. But, you know, with that kind of, you know, horse ranch, you know, setting and it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm a sucker for, for shows like that. Like I, I think, Season 1 of Dawson's Creek is like amazing, but that's just me. Um but yeah, and this is the the director of the pilot was the guy who directed the pilot for Dawson's Creek, Steve Miner. But um I it, the the this pilot was really interesting in that it does what a pilot is supposed to do and sort of give you an idea of what the the show itself is going to be like, but it's also very much its own sort of self-contained thing. And it actually ends with, you know, by, by putting the, the main character back where she started. You know, she it's, it begins with her getting out of, of you know, uh, I don't know if it's prison or whatever. Juvie Ju- Hall. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, she, she goes to work on this ranch and then she steals the horse. And because of that, she gets sent back to, to Juvie for another 90 days. And then I'm assuming... The, the basically the the series picks up from there, right? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean that's it's kind of kind of interesting that that it would sort of like go full circle in that first in that first episode, but it, it works. Like I kept on thinking, like while I was watching it, I'm like, this totally works as just like a standalone feature. Even you know, even if there was no show that came after, it would still work as like a a, a pretty solid feature.
0: Well, Michael was fond of stories about second chances mm-hmm. and giving people a second chance, which reminded me of another show that we were developing for John Delancey. Oh yeah, that that I think would have been a, a really cool show too. It was called Deja Vu, and it was a, about like a. Corp- it was science fiction, and it was about a corporation that uh, basically had time travel capability that was controlling it so that people never knew that they were manipulating historical events. But they were going back in time and actually manipulating events for corporate greed and stuff. And John Delancey is the the main character in the story who I know this is a segue, but it it was such a cool story about people having second chances. But The main character basically had his memory wiped and so that he didn't know Um, What this company had been doing because he used to work for them, but then he starts remembering things and having these like little flashes, like deja vu, and he meets this woman who has he thinks he knows her, but she he doesn't know, but she's having like the same exact experiences. So they sort of like time brings them back together again, and they start off on this uh, quest to figure out what's going on, and they they discover basically the evil corporation that's doing all these things and that was another really cool show which Michael specifically again developed with John Delancey in mind as the main character so it's kind of cool when you're developing a show and you know already like who the actor it would be if you ever could do the show because then it gives so much more depth to the writing and stuff you can visualize and hear the the
1: characters, Espe- especially since the two of them work together so frequently yes. and everything.
0: Yeah, they've done legend before that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's
2: that's pretty cool, man. All yeah, these I mean, shows. That, well, I mean, just hearing that concept, it almost lends itself. Um, because Mike, you had mentioned how the the pilot for Wildfire is sort of self contained, even if if a show didn't come after. But like, it almost feels like now, you know, when you're in the era of the shortened season with longer episodes like Sherlock or even daredevil. Like the, that, that concept, uh, that, that you just described, Eric sounds like it would lend itself to that sort of like short season sort of thing where they could focus on like an hour and a couple of hour and a half episodes. And that would count as an arc. So they wouldn't have to go through, you know, 24 hourly episodes of, of time travel to to have it go on. You could have like sort of these self-contained little arcs that like it, it, I I feel like a a concept like that has found its time, you know, now.
0: Yeah, definitely. If people can survive the breaks in between.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's always the trick, right?
0: Like like waiting two years for another two episodes of Sherlock.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you got to take the good with the bad, I guess, right? So um, this show is very different from his other work you know I mean his other stuff tends to be rather sci-fi based and I'm sure that a lot of that has to do with kind of like typecasting you know he was the Star Trek guy so I mean I'm sure that that um, a a lot of people tend to think of him as sort of like a science fiction writer but you know I think like you were saying last week um, he wasn't really just a science fiction writer he certainly had um interests in other areas as well and and this show is obviously indicative of that but like what what is it that makes this show a a Michael Pillar show you know what is it that that i mean do you see any aspects of him in in this show
0: well um i think part of it was inspired by the sort of midlife crisis that he was going through when he went into business with his son, Sean, and felt that the whole business was going to the to the youth demographic and that they really needed to like go in that direction. So I think probably in a lot of ways, um, this was inspired just by the opportunity to develop this, a show that was more like people in Sean's demographic who just to sort of sell the show, because that's what the, those kinds of uh, cable channels were looking for. I don't know if Michael is in it per se, more so than it might be more like inspired by Sean's youthful ex you know?
1: I'm curious because you, you've brought that up a couple of times now and I'm wondering what was Sean's take on all of this? Was he like of the same opinion of his dad that you know things were being more youthful, or was he like, whatever, I'm here, I'm doing my thing, I'm not thinking about it if in that sense, I'm just thinking about this as doing a show with my dad or I, i'm I'm very curious to know what his take on the whole on that on that well, philosophy I, think,
0: I, I was. think Sean just was happy to be involved in the, in the business. Knowing that, you know, Michael was very successful and this was a a way for him to get his foot in the the door. But Sean really uh, jumped in with both feet and got really involved and particularly like on the sets. He would be on location. He he directs episodes now. Um, He's done several other shows, you know, since Michael passed away, like Greek, which was another. Oh, yeah youthful thing. Now he's doing Haven and I know he's probably done a couple other projects too. But um I think Sean was just very, you know, enthusiastic about being able to work with Michael. But they didn't always see eye to eye. So they're they like creative conflicts and sometimes Michael would give in and sometimes Sean would win. And you know, I, I even wanted to be more involved in helping with creative Things like I had suggested a, a song that I thought would be a great theme song for Wildfire. It was the Kelly Clarkson song Breakaway, which which was like her first hit single after she won American Idol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she was still new and, and not only mostly known for American Idol at that point in time, but when I heard that song on her first CD, I said to Michael and Sean, I'm like, this song is the story. Of our main character, and, and it's called Breakaway, and it's and if you listen to the lyrics, it could be like a synopsis of of what Wildfire is about. And I tried and tried, I'm like you should get this song, and then you know, I guess um, Sean had other ideas. But later on, another series actually picked up that song. <laughs> as like their theme on I'm like, I talked <laughs> <laughs> like the greatest song. Oh
1: uh, yeah, that was uh, that that definitely would have been a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well.
0: The other thing I did want to talk about was Lloyd Segan's uh, role when we were developing Wildfire because he was Michael's the business side of of the pillar Segan company. Um, the show supposedly takes place in Northern California like in the Fremont area, I guess, of uh, the South Bay in Northern California. But it was actually shot in New Mexico. And at the time, um, the studio was always looking for places to save money, which is one of the reasons we didn't shoot the shows in California, because Dead Zone was up in Vancouver. But they, they needed some place that was more like California to, to do wildfire. And Lloyd Segan actually helped um, lobby the state legislature in New Mexico to pass tax incentives for production companies to come and shoot in New Mexico, and they actually did, and that was one of the reasons we, we went to New Mexico. But I remember Lloyd actually going out to New Mexico and testifying to committees in the legislature trying to get these tax incentives passed. So it's it's interesting, though, what producers do that people never hear about and don't even realize the the links that people go to make these shows happen.
1: That's crazy, and that's had a lasting impact. I, I know. I mean, I, I believe Crash was also a Lionsgate show, and the the first season was shot in L.A. And then for season two, when Iris Stephen Bear took over, they moved it to New Mexico. Even though it takes place in LA. And I like I, right. I remember hearing Bear say, like, Ah, you're gonna you're gonna have to convince me on this one and then they went and he's like, Okay, fine, it'll work. And it totally doesn't work. Totally <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, you know, when you're on I mean, I don't know what Northern California looks like, but I guess when you're on like horse ranches and stuff, you know. I bought yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I you know.
0: I mean I think it worked pretty well.
1: Yeah, yeah. For, for this show it worked it worked fine. Yeah. But that's crazy because know no yeah. yeah but this has had like a that's had like a lasting impact on the industry which i mean i'm, I'm well sure.
0: it's still a battle it happens because people who work in LA hate seeing all these projects going out of state or out of the country but so many states have passed these you know tax incentives and at, at one point in time canada not only had tax incentives but they also had a, a you know a, like value on the dollar that Mm. just by going to Canada because of the exchange rate, you could save like 30% just off the top because the dollars weren't equal to each other. And in more recent years when the dollar was more equal, you you saw some of the uh, productions like leaving Canada a little bit, but they still do tax incentives and, And it's sort of hard to avoid. that You can't have, like, every single show shot in Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And no matter how much you want it to look like Los Angeles, it's still Vancouver.
1: Yeah, yeah. Vancouver Uh, has a very distinct look to it, yeah.
0: I I used to wonder why um, they just didn't, you know, they would always pretend, like, everything shot in Canada is, like, an American city. And I'm like, why don't you just based in toronto like why do right, americans right. not want to watch a show just because <laughs> it's in toronto instead of new york i guess not but i mean there was a show on last season it's like a police procedural that's actually based in toronto i think oh really uh, oh. i don't know if they, i don't know if they got picked up or not but i thought finally you know stop stop pretending mm-hmm. <laughs> that you're not really where you are
1: yeah oh that would make sense yeah well, I, talking about uh, some of uh, the other collaborators on this show, I, I know we, we touched briefly on Christopher Teague, who's, you know, the co-creator. And then the, the director was was Steve Miner, who we, we mentioned briefly. Uh, and I know that you said that, you know, the production was kind of off doing its own thing or whatever. Um, but was Michael involved in, with the process of, you know, selecting a director and, and, and that kind of thing? Because... I guess-
0: I just, you know. I don't I, I'm sure he was because Michael always was involved in all the key decisions about any of the shows that that he was involved in especially the ones that he created um, but a lot of times those um, kinds of meetings and discussions were going on between him and Sean and Lloyd and I wouldn't be there so yeah. I don't I don't know all the particulars plus a lot of uh, because the productions were out of state. A lot of stuff just happened in other places where I wasn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's hard
0: to remember a lot
1: of things. For for those people who don't know Steve Miner, he, he goes way back. He was the director of Friday the 13th parts two and three. And uh, he did a bunch of like horror movies back in the day. And then he kind of transitioned to TV. He did the pilot for Dawson's Creek, which you know, you can definitely see that sort of same mm-hmm. vibe and same genre here. And like I said, I, I I love the first season of Dawson's Creek. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's amazing. Oh,
0: I love Dawson's Creek. <laughs> it um, changed the whole meaning of walking your dog for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: but Minor also directed... Uh, uh, an amazing movie, Lake Placid. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, Lake Placid. Did.
2: I didn't I didn't know that. He did? Yes, well, he I did. I have to tell you,
0: it's funny that you brought up Friday the 13th, because when I went to Trek Conderoga last weekend, they, they had me staying in a cabin right on, on Lake George in upstate New York, and it was so remote, and I was, like, staying in this cabin, by, out by the lake by myself, I'm like, Oh my god, is some guy gonna come out of the lake wearing a ski mask? <laughs> so I was thinking about that last
1: weekend. Yeah. I mean and, and that was that was the one, right? I mean like number well, number two is the one where he's the killer for the first time, right? And yes. then number three and, is the uh, one where yeah, he gets she the...
2: fools yeah, she fools him by uh impersonating his mother. She was a psychology student and she saw the severed head and tricked him at the end that his mother had come back. And then the third one was in 3D. Yeah, I remember. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and just to tie it all in, you know who played the mother in the remake?
0: There we go.
1: Nana Visitor.
0: Oh, okay. Seriously? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. There you go. It's such uh, a small world.
1: It is. I mean, hey, I mean, if you can get Nana Visitor to be in your TV show or movie, then you get her to be in your TV show or movie, right?
0: Uh, She was such a a wonderful... (laughs) person to work with i mean she's just like the sweetest woman I, yeah. I don't know have you ever met her
1: i i i've seen her at conventions i've heard stories about how like if someone comes up with a program with a bent corner she'll wait until they come back with a pristine one to sign it for you know yeah. i mean it sounds like she is like a super nice person
0: she really is and when they were doing the wildfire she actually bought a house in new mexico for the time that she actually lived out there for the the duration of the series. So she's, she really like puts her whole self into her work.
1: Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. And it it shows she's so good. I mean that, I mean, obviously deep space nine, that episode of Battlestar Galactica that she was on. Oh man. Mm -hmm. It was great. And then Dennis Weaver as, as her, her dad, I, he's so good i mean i just watched i just the other day i went to see touch of evil again and he plays the crazy uh um uh, the nightman he's like i'm just the nightman at the hotel <laughs> and that yeah. movie with janet lee oh my god he's so good and this must have been like one of the last things that he had ever done right
0: i'm very likely
2: yeah i uh, yeah i think he didn't didn't they have to write him out in the first, they had to write him out in the first season because um, I think his prostate cancer came back. Oh, okay. And he wound up, I think he wound up passing away during, it's I don't know if it was during the first season, but I, I know he got sick.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's too bad. But yeah, he's he's really good too. So, and then I, I had never heard of the the, the lead or, or seen her before, but Genevieve Cortez. Yeah, it's
0: so weird. I, I was looking it up on the IMDB today just to Refresh my memory. Mm-hmm. Apparently, she's got married. I'm like, her yeah, name's well, like Tadowski or something. Now
1: I think like, I, I think it's. I, I, looking at her name and her credits, I think she married one of the supernatural guys.
0: And that's possible, because I think she was on that show, too. Yeah, or, and that's... Yeah,
1: I don't think there's any... But I, I was
0: looking at it, and I'm like, I don't remember that name. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the Genevieve part. Yeah, yeah.
1: But she she was really good, too. Yeah, it's, it's, Yeah, she
0: really was good. There was some good casting.
1: It's a really solid cast, yeah. Well, I mean, are, are there any other thoughts on, on Wildfire? Any other stories or things that we should know about it?
0: No, it, it was just the first season was really michael's last season so it was it was a really tough tough year um trying to do both shows and michael was taking less and less active role because of his cancer treatments yeah because he was traveling all over the place texas New York, like tr- trying to seek out like the very best treatment centers and places and it was it was a tough year.
1: Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, that's sad. But
0: I mean, because by the time the show actually started airing in June of two thousand five, Michael was pretty uh, pretty sick. Later,
1: because mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: he had even had some because the he had had neck cancer, but it had attached to his esophagus, and in the beginning they couldn't find it, so it was hard to treat it. And then later, you know, he had some surgeries and things which made it so that he couldn't really speak anymore because it, it damaged his voice box. So for the last year or so, Michael's only way of communicating with anybody was just through email, which was kind of like a, a transformative m- moment when, when you realize. That technology hadn't really even existed back when we worked on Star Trek. Hmm. I mean, it was just in its mm-hmm. infancy. And then by the end, it was his only way of communicating with people, which was kind of sad, but also kind of a, a milestone in in the way the world was changing.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. He definitely left his, his mark, you know? I mean...
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's very sad. He was only 55, so...
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, hearing about, you know, all these other ideas that he had and everything, um, I, it, it really makes you kind of wish that you could see what else he could have brought us, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. E- Eric, uh, do you, do you have any, any, uh, projects or anything, anything that you're, you're doing on the internet that you want people to know about? I forgot to ask you that last week.
0: No, not really. I, I had a blast that Track on Daruga, so I think I posted like 500 photos on Facebook, which which I made public so the whole world could see them.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> it sounds like an amazing con. It really does.
0: It, it was a, it was sort of a, like coming full circle from being a 12 year old to actually getting to walk on to the Enterprise, and when you walk down those corridors and have like a 360 degree surrounding of the Enterprise, it's like you're actually on the ship, you know? And I remember when I was a 12-year-old kid, like daydreaming about stuff like that when I was watching reruns of Star Trek back in the early 1970s, and it was fun because David Gerald was there and he had all sorts of stories from the early days. And I—I I mean, I was the kid of of, of the guests at the convention because I was the next generation guy, and everybody else had worked on the original series. So, I mean, they had um, Barbara Luna and Louise Sorrell, Don Marshall, and uh, Sally Sally Callerman. So it was pretty cool to like have these people from the 19, from the original series there on the set. Yeah, it's like for them, it really was 50 years ago.
1: Yeah. That's pretty cool. For awesome. Sally Tellerman,
0: it was longer than 50 <laughs> years ago. Because yeah. Because they shot the pilot, you know, before the show actually aired. So, it, it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. That's, that's awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us again. You know, it's been really, uh, interesting and, and, you know, it's, it's really great. Like we were saying last week to get sort of a peek behind the scenes at, uh, yeah, at, at the creation of this show and, and, you know, Michael Piller is sort of like, you know, working process and all that good stuff. And it's, it's been really, really interesting. So we, we really appreciate you you coming on the show. Very much.
0: It, a few minutes ago, I remembered another uh, project that we were working on.
1: Oh yeah. Let's hear it.
0: I'm not sure I can remember the title per se, but it has something to do with the Romanovs. <laughs> And it was it was sort of a post- Cold War story back in the early days before uh, the Soviet Union I mean after the Soviet Union collapsed but it, the new Russia was still sort of in its formative stages and Michael was working with a writer that he had known for a long 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 time who who wanted to tell a story about it was sort of like a James Bond kind of story that it, it, it involved like a, an American, c i a type having to work with a Russian counterpart hmm. to escort um a girl that that was related to the the last czar of Russia who was living in exile in Paris that she's like like paris Hilton type person <laughs> like spoiled rotten brat with a little miniature dog in her purse and all that kind of thing. <laughs> But they have. To, but the Russian government wants to bring her back to Russia to possibly, like, reestablish like a figurehead royal family to sort of bolster the country and like give it a new like hope or whatever. And uh, and and all they have is this like spoiled, rotten brat girl. who's like the last Romanov, and it, it was sort of a, a fun, interesting like adventure drama kind of thing that at one point I think they almost had financing from some overseas uh, investors to go film in like Hungary or somewhere, but it's like things, things get like this close to happening and then it falls through. But it, it had a fun sort of like post-Cold War spy kind of thing going on.
1: Yeah there's so many so many ideas and some of them come you know so close like you're saying it's like almost a miracle when even just one gets made you know
0: Yeah well and hundreds of pilots get made every year and only a fraction of those ever make it onto the television and then the ones that do make it onto the television most of those don't survive their first you know even their first season if if they even make it through like five or six episodes Without getting canceled, so it's amazing how much stuff happens that people never see. Yeah.
1: yeah, and the fact that he had five of those pilots that actually made it to air, you know, regardless of the the circumstances surrounding them, it's just incredible, you know. And the yeah, fa- and the phenomenal. and the fact that they're all you know very very solid is is also extremely impressive. So
0: it's true. Yeah, I think I mean Michael really was fantastic writer, and I think one of the things that he was a genius at was the ability to use subtext. I was always telling people about subtext. And you can tell when it's done well and you can tell when it's done badly. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of people try to do subtext and it's really bad. Um, But it's like when you basically are talking about something without actually talking about it Mm -hmm. by using like symbolism or some other subject to sort of relate to what you're really trying to say. And Michael, I think, was a genius at it. He, he just always was able to to do that. And a lot of times, like in Star Trek, he would use baseball metaphors. And, and those that would be sort of you know, the, what he would use for his subtext. And uh, I see a lot of times in like current television drama which people think they're doing, <laughs> doing that and it's so obvious like that it's like it's not really subtexted it's so obvious that you're doing it because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it really needs to be more like so subtle that when you finally realize oh yeah that's like that's like the problem that they're really dealing with is what this is so yeah and that was one of the things about Michael that I thought he was really good at yeah
1: for sure and that's something that Star Trek is kind of built on, which you know, is is one of the reasons why he was probably such a good fit with that franchise. You know, yeah.
0: and I have to say too, like when I um, was working with Michael in the beginning of Deep Space Nine, and they, he was writing the pilot episode for Deep Space Nine, and they were um, talking about the aliens that live in the wormhole, and and just the the concept of what Michael was able to in part about these these aliens that live in a, a place where space and time don't have any context the way it does for the rest of us was was like the moment when i was reading uh, stephen hawking's book a brief history of time and he's talking about the theory of relativity and there's like this one moment where you can actually help understand what the theory of relativity really means when, you t- when you're talking about space and time and all this stuff that's almost beyond comprehension. And I felt that again when I was uh, reading Michael's pilot for Deep Space Nine, when he was describing the existence of these aliens in a place where all time, everything's happening simultaneously in space and time for them. There's no past or present or future or whatever. And it's it's pretty cool when when you can sort of write about stuff like that that's very sort of philosophical and metaphysical all at the same time. Yeah. Because especially like when I was reading Stephen Hawking's book, I I just when I was reading it, I sort of suddenly had this moment of like recognition and then I disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) I mean the concept is really mind-boggling when you
1: for yeah. sure. Yeah.
0: So Especially when you start talking about before time and before space, there's no space. <laughs> How can you have no space? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, these are, I know it sounds silly, but I think Michael was really good at communicating things of that nature, especially when he was doing science fiction.
1: Oh yeah, no, definitely. He was. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, you know, watching that episode when I was, you know, in junior high and, you know, was not at all interested in those types of concepts and yet i was sort of riveted by what i was seeing on screen and yeah that that's definitely true yeah it's cool well thank you again for for joining us to to talk about michael pillar you know just in general and and wildfire in particular um it's been really interesting and uh you're more than welcome back anytime
0: well thank you It's, it's been fun
1: well, that was fun talking to Eric today again about wildfire. Uh, he certainly got a lot of info there on on the making of of television shows and Michael Pillar's television
2: shows in particular. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was a lot of fun. Has been a lot of fun talking to him.
1: Yeah, we'll have to have him on again real soon for sure to talk about his stuff. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the only thing we're talking about here on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
3: Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Is there that awkward part like, near the end where he's like walking back to his shuttle like, so will this take me back, or...?
1: <laughs> 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 you said it wasn't very fast. Can I go fast enough to slingshot around the sun?
0: Can we slingshot the Dyson Sphere? Because that's basically a sun.
3: Earl Grey. Yeah, really, she's following the Hasperat, I think, is really what it is. <laughs> Come for the revolution, stay for the Hasperat. It's got to be fresh Hasperat. None of that replicates. Like Daniel's like at the,
0: watching the end of this episode, like tears are coming down the face. It's like,
3: no, oh, it's the Hasperat.
0: It's so spicy. It's what it is.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the orb. Well, apparently, and did you find this interesting, Matthew? Apparently, the Na'vark reports directly to the Prophets.
1: Which is awkward because they don't always show up for meetings. So, Right. Yeah.
3: Plus, you never know what time the meeting is really going to be, right?
1: That is true. It could have been
3: yesterday and you might have missed it. The Ready Room. Do you think this episode would have been so popular and remain a fan favorite if the Enterprise had been overrun with zebra mussels? To the journey! (laughs) The crew attempts to rescue three aliens in stasis from a bizarre program based on fear.
1: Like all fear, you eventually vanish.
3: Warp 5. It kind of like is akin to um, when fans saw the galaxy class in the next generation for the very first time. And you had basically a crew and civilian complement of what, over a thousand people? About two-thirds of that complement were civilians and their families, so you actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and and their extended families on board. Commentary, Trek Stars. One of the things that amazes me about the score for Star Trek The Motion Picture is that he he only had 50% of the movie available to him when he scored. So he, he was scoring an awful lot to scene missing, scene missing. The 602 Club.
0: Where did oh. he get the cloak from on the <laughs> other planet? I really, really, really want to
3: know. He shows up uh, with the he,
1: cloak. He, he, he kind of fashioned it out of out of a lud-
3: rudimentary <laughs> lane. <Yeah>. Uh... <laughs> Literary treks.
1: It's a small point, but I thought it was really interesting to have here in the book because, again, that's what Star Trek Deep Space Nine has really always done for Star Trek, which is kind of make faith okay in the star trek universe and show how it's valid and so i thought that was a
3: really nice
1: uh, in it again it's a it's a tiny point in the book but i thought it was pretty powerful at least for me
3: who is somebody who is a faith so Mm -hmm. axonar the official podcast It is the spirit of TOS that matters, that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969, that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that, but it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp.
2: And we have her to thank for the fact that Deanna Troy only has two breasts. Yes, thank you. you. Thank you, DC Fontana, for sparing us from a three-breasted Troy.
3: And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
1: Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our show on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form on Trek.fm, uh, just go to trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. On Twitter, you can find us at Trek FM as a network, or you can find the network on Facebook at facebook.com trackfm Trek.FM. Uh, you can also find the Babel Conference on, on Facebook. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at Trek.FM and click the Discussion tab on the menu bar. John, where can people find you?
2: On Twitter, find me at Kessel Junkie. Uh, You'll find me occasionally lingering around in the Babel Conference. And uh, I appear on a weekly podcast called Words with Nerds with my friend Craig that drops on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And uh, so come on over and give a listen there. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K.
1: Or you can find me on FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew. Or you can find me on commentarytrackstars.com doing commentary track stars off topic for one more episode and then commentary track star babies. And you can also uh, email us at comtrackstars at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at comtrackstars. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, track stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. John, what book do you have for us this week?
2: Well, for this week, uh, I uh, have Star Wars, The Weapon of the Jedi, A Luke Skywalker Adventure by Jason Fry, narrated by Jonathan Davis. Uh, This unabridged version uh, is available on Audible, and uh, the synopsis is, Luke Skywalker returns for an all-new adventure in this thrilling upper-middle-grade novel. Set between Star Wars A New Hope and Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, the story finds Luke Skywalker, C-3PO, and R2-D2 stranded on a mysterious planet and explores a dangerous duel between Luke and a strange new villain. Hidden in the story are also clues and hints about the upcoming film Star Wars The Force Awakens, making this a must-listen for fans, old and new.
1: Yeah, you know, when they were first talking about these books, because I was like, I'm reading all of the canon stuff, all of it. And then they're like, um, this storybook is canon. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Am I sp- So I'm supposed to read the storybook? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. And, um, you know, they were like, well, these are going to be upper middle grade books, which are designed to introduce children who may not be familiar with Han and Luke and Leia to those characters prior to the release of Star Wars, The Force Awakens. And my first thought was, if they haven't seen the original trilogy, then why are they reading a Star Wars book? And my second thought was, um, okay, if that's what these are here for, and they're for upper middle graders, then I can obviously just... Skip these, right? Yep. And and I can do Aftermath, and that'll be good. And then I was in, like, Target, and I'm like, okay, those are the, the little kid books. There's Aftermath. And what's this Lost Stars thing? Why is it so long? I thought this was a little kid book, too. And then Drew's like, that's young adult. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And they're like, you know, like like Harry Potter or Hunger Games. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll I'll read that one. But I'm drawing the line at these at these uh these these upper middle grade books
2: tear down that wall mike tear okay. down that wall they're excellent okay. all three of them are excellent highly recommend them all right
1: okay wh- 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 why well, i guess uh, you do you have a show that, that tells us why you?
2: <laughs> yeah you know what amble on over to the 602 club uh supplemental number eight i think where uh, I discuss it with uh, Matt Rushing here on the Trek FM network. All right. I'll read these damn books, but, you know. You'll be glad you did.
1: It's just, I, I just, it's, it's kind of rude of them to make, like, quality books, you know, that, that I have to right. read uh, when I don't have enough
2: time, you know. Why right. Why do they well, do that? Yeah, it, it's, like, it's like that uh, Han and Chewie storybook that they released, uh, uh-huh. Back back when I was a kid, um, it was actually I really loved the artwork in it. Oh, gosh, I wish I still had my copy. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it. Millennium Falcon was on the cover. Read the thing till it was dog-eared. But um, <laughs> you know that wasn't canon. But it, you know these are actually I the fact that they are upper middle grade novels doesn't impact the quality one bit. And you're right, it's like you should be able to ignore books like this, but you can't. They're really they're very clever, okay I'll give them a shot I'll give them a shot well
1: all right all right and 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 you can give them a shot too for free uh since you listen to trek f m as a trek f m listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a thirty day trial to see just how great audible is. Just go to audibletrial dot com slash trek f m and sign up today again that's audibletrial.com dot com slash trek f m and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary Trek Stars and the network. All right, well, I better go read some Star Wars books. But yeah, we'll be back next week to recap our, our look at Michael Pillar, uh, where we're going to take a, a look at all of his television pilots, and yeah, see see what conclusions we can draw.